0: Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmingen, and with me in the studio is my friend, Niklas Sävos. How are you today? I'm just fine, Eddie.
1: It's a great pleasure to have our our CEO with us today.
0: Yes, we have the honor to have Björn Fallén in the studio. He's the CEO of RedEye, the publisher of this podcast. And for me, a big inspiration in my evolution as an investor during the seven years now that we have worked together. In addition to being a seasoned investor, Bjorn is a big reader and the author of Quality First Investing, published on 31st of December 2021. Niklas, what is the book about?
1: So, broadly, it's about quality investing, a subject we discussed in episode 8 with uh, Lawrence Cunningham. Bjorn is the innovator behind Red Eye's quality rating system, an investment checklist that helps to gain a deeper understanding of the business and its people. As equity analysts here at RedEye, we use the rating system to systematically evaluate the quality of each of the 170 companies we cover. The quality in turn determines the cost of equity that we use to discount the future cash flows. And the rating system has been a key success factor behind the outperformance of RedEye's picks portfolio, which has delivered annual returns of about 40% over the past decade.
0: And we'll get into it during our conversation, but who would you say that the book is most useful for?
1: Everybody who wants to to improve as an investor or as an analyst, um, but also for for leaders, for business leaders.
0: And how is it structured, the book?
1: Um, It's structured as, uh, I mean, first of all, Björn describes um, his philosophy and, and then he more or less goes into the three sections, people, business and financials which are the building blocks that enable companies to deliver sustained operational outperformance and attractive long-term earnings growth. Uh, These each have a number of subcategories. For example, under people, there is the capital allocation checklist with questions such as is there consistency in the people responsible for capital allocation? Uh, And for each question, there is an explanation why it matters and how to assess it. So in total, the book contains more than 100 questions. Uh, it also includes a discussion on how to apply the framework as an investor, which is exemplified with the performance of RedEye's Topics portfolio.
0: The chairman of MOI Global, John Mihailovic, writes that quality first investing is a treasure trove of practical insights on how to understand the qualitative dynamics and future potential of a business. We are excited to have the author on the show. Here comes our conversation with Bjorn Folian. <laughs> Hello, Björn, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, and thank you for having me here at the podcast.
0: Can you start out by telling our listeners a bit about yourself?
2: Sure. I spent over 20 years in the investing world as an investor, analyst, and financial advisor. I am the re-founder and principal shareholder, not just the CEO of RedEye. I'm also the chief investment officer of RedEye's fund advisory. In my spare time, I enjoy reading books, of course, listen to your podcast and uh, play a lot of paddle tennis, travel, having fun with my family, um, a lot of outdoor activities, uh, skiing and so. And how did your passion for investing start and evolve? I think it was in my early 20s uh, when I started at the university. Um, uh, I've been investing for for a time and... uh, uh, it, I've been successful, successful in, in speculating in growth and hope stocks uh, for a while. I, I was convinced about getting financial freedom early in my life, and uh, and why was the financial freedom so important for you? It started out when I was a kid, and when I, uh, catched my uh, headmaster Foster watching text TV, uh, saw all these numbers on the screen and uh asked him what it was was all about and he he told me it was stocks uh share prices for those stocks and and he owned uh a share in in those companies and uh, uh from the last day he had earned uh, quite some money and uh, at that at that time and and i uh just found out that you can make money without working in I write about this in the book and uh, that, that was a sort of a, a aha moment for me and uh, uh, I was quite convinced that I need to learn this so I can play, keep on playing around, you know. So uh, I think financial freedom is, is something that we all are looking for uh, uh, as it gives us the possibilities to follow our passion. And in this case, it be- it became my passion as well. Lucky me. Well, <laughs> <laughs>
0: you got it all. And how did your investing
2: evolution continue? Well, um, so my first phase as an investor was investing in special situations in these biotech uh, and pharma companies. I usually invested heavily ahead of data releases or drug approval events, uh, typically in these special situations Uh, There was a rise uh, in the share price as the event approaches uh, and uh, the strategy was to take the initial stake off the table right before the data was expected to hit the market. And in this way, I would only risk my gains to ride the momentum that follows the positive news. Um, And combined with the stop loss uh, at 20% below my purchase price, it was a good strategy in theory. However, uh, I wasn't always disciplined, and, and in the financial crisis 2007-8, uh, 7 and 8, I, I ended up with uh, dead stocks in my portfolio that I thought were too cheap to discard, and uh, almost uh, being wiped out. And that was the second time. I also had some missteps in the tech bubble of 2000 when I almost lost it all.
0: And what were your lessons from being wiped out, almost being wiped out those two times?
2: Basically. Uh, I compound leverage with an extremely concentrated portfolio of three to five biotech stocks. Uh, You can call this strategy Russian wallet investing, a a a ticking bomb waiting to happen. You know, and um, optimists can lead to big bets and hope rather than evidence. Unfortunately, the potent combination of uh, realized success and uh, intense effort gives uh, an illusion of skill, which translates into overconfidence and and a failure to appreciate randomness. And in the end, it's it's very difficult to recover from a large loss or make up for negative compounding years to to get you back to even. Uh, the, the The lesson learned here is that you should always try to put yourself in a situation or in a position where the likelihood of a big drop is extremely limited. So this was in 2008, you said. How did
0: you come into the quality investing approach?
2: I think you do that by... uh, For me, it was was getting back to the drawing board and I um, was studying the success of others and uh, learning other ways of investing and uh, the quality growth companies were those that came back fastest and so on and I I wanted to know uh, more about that kind of strategy uh, because there were some companies that I had invested in that I always thought was too expensive but uh, that was the typical trade for these companies. uh, that I that I mem- remembered, uh, uh, after doing mm-hmm. a lot of research on it, uh, I started to 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 write this checklist for me to to find that kind of companies, and and, and from there, I also uh, my circle of companies uh, was growing from the pharmaceutical industry to from to the medical industry, medtech. And from there to tech industries and a lot of other industries as well. But uh, uh, if I would have stuck with the biotech companies purely, I I couldn't change with those companies. So I needed to move forward with companies that had cash flows.
1: And it takes a lot of effort to write a book. And you managed to do it while already working more than full time. Why did you decide to to write a book?
2: You know, this book began as a small internal project at Red Eye, so the initial scope was to institutionalize lessons learned from refining the equity research process during my many years as an equity journalist, and also investing in the stock market. Uh, However, it was John Mihailovic, chairman of MOI Global, who inspired me to publish my writings about the Subdias book, I was getting some feedback from him on it, and then he I actually thought that this would be a good subject for a book as there were not so many books written about it. You can say that writing this book is all about helping myself as well as equity analyst, thinking more clearly and building deeper understanding about the companies we cover and invest in. Uh, I believe that to maintain the conviction that is necessary to move against the grain. One must commit to undertaking the deepest bottom-up fundamental research on the the companies that we invest in. And and this book is all about that, how to build confidence and conviction to become more patient. We all know that patience is the most essential investor quality, but uh, it's also one of the hardest things we can learn. Uh, And I, I think, we all have to have patience to ride through the market turbulence, It's it, to, to wait for great investments to play out and let the power of compounding do its work. You also need patience to wait for the right opportunity to, to, to buy at a price well below what, it, what you estimate to be its fair value. So I think <clears throat> that there's that, a quote from Charlie Munger who said once that, that, that you don't make money when you buy and you don't make money when you sell, but you make money when you wait. And, and that is what patience is about. The name of the book is Quality First Investing. How come you chose this title? The title I first chose was Investing with Intelligence, uh, with the subtitle Avoiding Painful Investment Mistakes by Asking 114 Smart Questions. But uh, that turned out to be... Uh, less good uh, according to the marketing people and the feedback that I got from people who read an advanced review copy. Um, As it's too subtle was the feedback and um, at at least that's what they said at the marketing uh, department. So in order to hook the potential readers, we we came up with a title that better convey uh, the content and it is more memorable. and most importantly, more searchable uh, quality first investing, uh, a checklist approach to finding and sitting tight in multi-baggers.
0: You, uh, and as you say, you dedicate the book to Red-Eyes equity analysts and other independent thinkers who commit to undertaking this, the deepest bottom-up fundamental research on companies. So we know uh, also that you are interested in thematic investing. Can you tell us a bit about your view of these different approaches?
2: Well, uh, as a top-down investor, or thematic investor, you are more interested in the analysis of emerging long-term trends based on current technological advances, for example. A bottom-up investor, on the other hand, is more interested in the analysis of a given company's performance, its fundamentals. So uh, you could say that top-down investors are big-picture people, whereas bottom-up investors are more detail-oriented in their decision-making. That said, one, one can always combine these two investment styles to improve the odds of finding potential multi-bagger stocks. If you can identify stocks that are favorably exposed to long-term trends, such as digital health or digital entertainment, for example, it will be easier to focus on the long-term and be patient and uh, as there is a long growth runway. Uh, the alpha generation with trends boils down to investing during the accelerating stage of technology adoption and uh, sidestep during the decelerating stages. And and combined with sound fundamental analysis, it could offer a great source of investment opportunities. Um, however, you can, pe- people have a tendency to overact to, to new exciting technologies as well, especially as media act as a huge amplifier well, well, it's popular is sell them sheep, we used to say. Uh, so you need to be aware uh, of valuations and use the bottom-up fundamental research to separate the long-term investment opportunities from the short-term types, uh, I think. And uh, you can, for example, when a new firm comes along with a sexy new technology, for example, you, you must remember that, that pure play investments, the pioneering technology companies, Often aren't where the real magic is. It's important to look past the headline technology uh, to find uh, the inventive uses. But investors are used looking there, Uh, and uh, the the biggest opportunity typically lurks in in companies that are enabled by technology and uh, investing in businesses that will benefit from or or facilitated by. new technology has often proved to be the smartest strategy. So for example, in the case of the electric vehicle industry, it is hard to know today which manufacturer will ultimately be the winner in this situation, investing in the more consolidated enablers like battery makers, lithium miners, and sensor makers, or perhaps even charging stations is more likely to bring success if you keep an eye on the valuations. that is my take on bottom-up fundamental research and thematic investing.
1: If we go into the book, you have divided the checklist into three main sections, people, business, and financials. Why these three?
2: I think these three broad areas covers everything when it comes to business quality from an investment perspective. People, business, and financials are the very building blocks that enable companies to deliver sustained operational outperformance and attractive long-term earnings growth. Um, so um, what, what, what else is there to analyze from a quality perspective, you think, Niklas?
1: No, I, th- I I have to say, I think it covers most of, of, of what you need, um, at least as a business analyst. And then you have different things uh, to be a, a, a stock analyst or, um, yeah, because, I mean, to get... To give you an example, I mean, I've learned a lot from, uh, from Warren Buffett. And he speaks about you have to find um, businesses with great long-term prospects operated by people you can trust, capable people you can trust, um, priced reasonably. And then in addition, he talks about the circle of competence. And I think if you can answer the, all the questions that you bring up, I think you have a circle of competence. If you can't answer the questions, I don't think you have circle competence. And I think th- that's why I think it's a really good method to use.
0: What you shouldn't forget is your own mind. And we have talked about it in several of our episodes here, the multidisciplinary approach or yeah, learning from your own mistakes and so on. So, So this is very good to analyze the quality of the business. But then you also you shouldn't forget, of course, to do introspection and think about how you behave. Yeah, the basic building
2: blocks are, are mostly the same. It's, it's how you cut the deck that differs, and, the, uh, and that is based on your experience, of course. So, uh, uh, how you phrase different questions and so on.
1: So, can you walk us through the three segments briefly and what type of questions you outline in each segment?
2: Okay, I, I try. It, it, basically, it, we're trying to answer three key questions. Uh, One, does the business have great people behind it? Two, does the business have favorable long-term prospects? Three, does the business have solid financial fundamentals? These three key questions are answered indirectly by answering sub-questions that are grouped into separate categories. For example, to answer the key question, does the business have great people behind it. We answer questions in seven subcategories. Business passion, execution capability, capital allocation, investor communication, executive compensation, ownership strength, and board leadership. All these subcategories are assessed on five checks of quantitative and and qualitative questions. And each check is allocated one point in, in, in the question uh, in, in the question, uh, if the question ca- can be answered with with yes, and the total number of these points makes up uh, uh, it makes up each sub subcategory score on a scale that ranges from zero to, s- to five, rounded up uh, to, to to the nearest whole number. If one is unsure about the question or disclosing is in uh, in adequate, that the check fails by default. The goal here is to be less wrong rather than trying to be right, and also this is consistent with the best ideas often being the simplest. I think, and then uh, let's let's take execution capability for example. At its core, execution simply means getting things done right. So effective execution is a key determinant of business success or failure. However, the challenge with evaluating Execution performance is that it often takes years to see how things play out, but there are several Telltale uh, signs that that indicate ability to execute on opportunities. So, in order to answer it, management uh, 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 appear to have strong execution capabilities. We, uh, we we have six questions in our checklist to so to evaluate that. Uh, let's say. First one is, does management have complementary skills and, and relevant sector experience? And the second question uh, we have on, under that is, have the senior team CEO uh, and the CEO been together for more than five years? And the third question is, is there sound strategy for long-term growth? And fourth question, does the management tend to deliver on promises on time and according to plan? And the fifth check here, has the CEO done it successfully before? And there's a, even a sixth question. Uh, and that's the CEO face personal challenges that might cloud his or her judgment? So uh, the, the sixth check here is, is a negative question and it's just a complementary one. Uh, it provides additional, additional information to assist with investment decision-making, but it has no impact on the scoring model.
0: Yeah, this is very interesting. We have talked with several of our guests, uh, for example, Sean Eddings that we had in the first episode with the Intelligent Fanatics Framework about this. The How can you judge who will become the, the successful ones, the business leaders, and, and who will fail?
2: Well, I, I agree with you, Andy. Uh, and uh, uh, at the end of the day, people drive profits, not numbers. It doesn't matter how great a company's product is if management doesn't make the right decisions, right? So... It all comes down to doing business with people you trust. And uh, so, uh, nonetheless, in, in making decisions, we tend to pay too much attention to really available numerical metrics and relegate quality as it typically doesn't have a numerical score. Uh, if, if you think about it, it's often easier to explain that a stock is cheap, that uh, the, a the, the, the company is great. Wouldn't you agree with
0: that yet, Eddie? I definitely agree, on this is something we talked about in uh, episode 15 with Denis jean Shak. actually, he, he said that he always asks his interns at uh, Ocean Park Investments, how would you construct a portfolio in order to lose as much money as possible? And I thought that was pretty fasc- fascinating because then he said, well, would you short the most expensive stocks? No, maybe that's not the reason, like that's not a good way to go and would you short the cheapest stocks? Does that make any sense at all? So what would you do? And he talks a lot about return on capital employed as the driving metric. So you left it open to investors to rank all these questions in order to uh, uh, like the importance of them. And all of us are likely to have our own preference there. So Buffett has this magic quote that when a management with a reputation for brilliance tackles a business with a reputation for bad economics, it is the reputation of the business that remains intact. So what is your view on this?
2: You know, Eddie... um... Investors often celebrate brilliant ma- managers uh, and uh, criticize those that fail to see future pitfalls. But perhaps investors have put too much emphasis on management teams. Uh, it seems likely that success isn't de- determined exclusively by the management team uh, per se, but also by the time constraints under which the management team has to adapt, which in turn, is governed by the pace of innovation in the industry they operate in. So in a fast-changing market, companies must stay flexible and constantly come up with new or improved products. However, at some point, companies that must change constantly are destined to make wrong decisions and succumb uh, no matter how innovative they are. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Okay, so. Uh, therefore, a, a management that run a business that operate in a slow-changing market with long product cycles generally are more adaptable because they have plenty of time to see and react to change. History is littered with with victims of disruption. Nokia is just one of them. And and, and in other words, I agree with Buffett. However, I would adapt his saying to something like. Uh, when a great manager takes the helm of a fast-changing business, they may not emerge with their reputation intact. Yeah, that's a good one. And um,
0: also covering the whole book, you have uh, must have had some challenges when
2: selecting what to include and what not to include. Quality is easy to spot but hard to define, right? So. But that's that's the problem I tried to solve when I've, I wrote this book. Uh, it involves diagnosing situations, in this case, investment risks. Uh, successful investing is first and foremost about reducing investment risks. So I've slowly built this checklist over the years, uh, responding to my mistakes and, and, and learning from those of other investors as well. So no doubt useful questions are still missing and uh, s- some may seem to be Duplicates and even some factors may be more attributes uh, of performance rather than drivers of it. And uh, uh, this has probably been the most challenging to focus on the real problem and not on its symptoms. Um, for example, uh, a long history of high and growing dividend payments is often seen as a characteristic of, of, of quality companies, but the merit of growing dividends is at best a symptom of earnings growth, right? I think Th- Thomas said is best in his book, 100 to 1 in the stock market. He said something like this, when you, when you buy a cow to milk, don't plan to raise her against your neighbor's horse. And and that makes the point here. Uh, high, dividend, high dividends doesn't make a multi-bagger. So... I choose to exclude dividend track record from the quality checklist in this case. And that said, uh, as with most important and interesting things in life, investing is a constant learning exercise. Uh, If you try to learn every day, your insights and conclusions will never be final. So who knows what your checklist or my checklist will look like in 10 years from now uh, if, if you live by that notion. And, and anyway, the goal will be the same, to be less wrong rather than trying to be right. And that's how you keep an open mind, I think.
1: It's easy to see equality but hard to define. It makes me think about uh, the U.S. Supreme Court um, Justice uh, <laughs> Potter Stewart, yeah. when he was asked uh, how to define um, a, if a case were pornography or not. I know it when I see it, <laughs> was the response.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, and <clears throat> some of the questions in the rating model, such as those within the financials, may be quite quick to answer, while others demand lengthy investigations. Putting a lot of effort into an ID at the same time entails opportunity cost. Do you have a filter for when to put an ID into the too hard pile, so to speak?
2: Hmm, good question. Um, it usually takes no more than 30 minutes to run the checklist if you know the business very well. Um, it, it will highlight issues that I should go back and do some more research on. It forces me to seek out contradictory evidence that I may have overlooked or need to look at again to assess the likelihood of those issues causing problems. When um, done with that, I try to weigh them in my mind uh, to determine whether they negate or, or the benefits of the investment or not. And generally, if the company scores scored below four on people, I will discard it into the too hard pile, as I said, and... Uh, the score for business and financials are more dependent on what type of investment it is, Is if it's a special situation or compound, I would say.
1: And tying business quality to the cost of equity as directly as you advocate is not that common in, in the industry, which primarily measures risk through volatility. Um, talk us through the benefits of your approach.
2: <laughs> it's made me think about a Buffett quote that was about Half of the people here don't know what beta is, and the, well, the, the, the other half who knows couldn't care less. Uh, uh, as an investor, the, the discount rate serves as a jaw stick for your required rate of return, of course. But put simply, it represents the return you required for taking on the risk of owing a stock. Uh, a stable, predictable company will have a low required return, while a risky company with unpredictable cash flows will have a higher required rate. Uh, this is one aspect of incorporating business quality into your modern state, and uh, the most common method method for for est- estimating the cost of equity is the the, the capital asset pricing model, the CAPM. Uh, however, there is significant disagreement over appropriate values for the equity risk premium and beta, as I said before. For this reason, we use a simplified. Uh, method to, to, to measure cost of equity that captures the logic of the cap and while we take a the, the large qualitative and, and forward-looking approach. Uh, we use a build-up approach to derive the cost of equity estimates for individual companies that is based on the risk-free rate uh, 1% today, the average yield of a 10-year bond over the past decade. Uh, and an equity risk premium of 6%, based on what we observe as a mean reverting real return, inflation adjusted uh, on the Swedish stock market over long rolling time horizons. Uh, th- this is not a forecast, but rather what we believe shapes investors' expectations. Uh, th- th- then we add a company-specific risk premium that ranges from 1% s- to plus 10%, which is based on our assessment of the company's quality rating. Mostly, you end up with a cost of equity of about 10 to 12%, which is, which is something I find reasonable for the type of companies we, we cover at, at Red Eye. So our goal is to provide a reasonable distinction between the Risk characteristics and and expected returns of different companies, while minimizing the effects of reasons of bias, false position, and market noise, and so on. However, you can never fully compensate for risk by using high di- high discount rate. At some point, the risk is simply not worth taking. No, no matter how cheap the company may
0: seem. And when uh, speaking of of risk, people often mix this up with uh, uncertainty. So what is the difference, would you say?
2: Between risk and uncertainty? Yes. Um, Well, risk is the potential for permanent loss of capital if things go wrong. But the risk of negative future developments is simply unpredictable as more things can happen than will happen, how Marsh used to say. Uh, And knowing the probability doesn't mean you know what's going to happen, right, so uh, th- this is uncertainty. And uh, however, we, when, when we can understand the range of possibilities, uh, statistics can be helpful to judge risk, investment risk can be modelled that, uh, if that's the case, uh, and it can be estimated, but it still cannot be known with certainty. In other words, we can prepare for possibilities by seeking uncertainty on favourable terms. And that is what we should do, I think, and, and for example, if you consider late-stage biotech company developing an Alzheimer's treatment, for example, so uh, the uncertainty in such a business is very high, uh, but you can prepare for the possibility by seeking uncertainty on favorable terms. The risk is that you lose almost everything on, on bad news, of course, but uh, the price you pay is the most time-honored determinant of whether something is risky. So uh, uh, let's say uh, it, it, how risky is it if you get it for free, for example? It, 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 it's silsh, right? So this this is an extreme example, of course, and and you can never remove all the risks. But once in a while, you will be able to invest in such a business on extremely favorable terms, and and that's what investing is about. We simply have to place our bets in higher probability situations, that said, some bets are not worth taking. Uh, no matter how good the odds are, seem to be, uh, we, we we never want to buy a stock that can't come back after a big jump, a big drop in the share price. So uh, that's what, what one Buffett usually calls the catastrophe risk. So we, we, we want to avoid those situations. Uh, So, uh, uh, he also said that you should never risk what you have and uh, need for what you don't have and don't need. Uh, I think that pretty much captures the essence of risk and uncertainty.
1: And you bring up that quality companies are systematically underpriced in the market. What do you think are the reasons for, for the underpricing?
2: The short answer is that quality is systematically underpriced by markets over long-term time periods because most investors tend to discount delayed gratification too heavily. The longer answer is that the potential reward for investing in high-quality companies is that they continue to grow over time by consistently reinvesting a large part of their earnings at high rates of return. This compounds the value of your stake in the business over many, many years achieving exponential growth. However, most investors find it very, very hard to understand exponential growth, of course. So they tend to confuse land returns with the much more powerful exponential effects of compounding, which explains why the latter is often underestimated. And understanding that a great company's stock can multiply 100 times in 25 years when you compound at 20% annually is not into India after all. If you you sell year 20, you will get only about 40 times. And if you hold it for just 10 years, your return is five times your original investment. Uh, the, The point is that the power of compounding is relatively invisible over short periods of time. But it is enormous over the long term, and I think that pretty much explains why quality companies are systematically underpriced—the compounding effect, so to say.
1: One one takeaway I got from reading this uh, section was that um, I thought about the, that this could be a reason also for smaller companies with uh, lower liquidity getting punished harder in the market through a, a higher risk premium, which is mainly just due to to higher volatility while in some cases being businesses of really, really high quality who dominates a niche market. Do you agree?
2: I do agree. However, small-cap companies may only sell one product in one end market, which means they are less diversified. Large cap uh, may, may, may be selling multiple products in multiple geographies that makes for better earnings predictability and less volatility. So, yeah, sure, I do agree. And you mentioned that the
0: book is not solely written for investors, but also for managers who would benefit from thinking like owners. So, so are there any questions that companies
2: typically fail? For example, I would say that many companies fail check number two in business passion. Uh, it says, Does the CEO think independently and exhibit original ideas? And very few CEOs challenge conventional practices and engage with bold new ideas and initiatives. Uh, most of those CEOs who do turns out to be founders and corporate outsiders who bring fresh approaches to, to the company and uh, different and perspectives from there. Um, my guess is that industry veterans often get accustomed to a certain way of doing things or thinking about them and struggle to approach problems from a different perspective. Um, another question that may uh, be right here. M- many companies fail on check number four on board leadership. Um, do most board directors appear business savvy and shareholder oriented? Um, the validation that comes with respected board members means investors are far more likely to consider investing in the business, but great directors are very rare. Um, the key here is that truly uh, the, the, the director truly understands what Constitutes a high quality business and that they hold a sizable, personal stake in the company. But very few directors have experience as a director, manager, or major shareholder where they have helped build and maintain a successful business over an extended period while providing superior returns to owners and uh, even fewer directors hold a stake that is above and beyond their board compensation so uh, i would say that many 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 companies fail on that check too yeah and for
0: an existing holding how often would you say that one should go through the checklist to make sure that
2: the quality is not deteriorating Once a year or when something considerable happens to the company or business uh, industry, I think would be a good time to do it. No, normally you do it in the quarterly reportings and so on, thinking it through. It goes quite quick when you've done it a few times with the company.
1: Uh, so let's move into uh, Björn as an investor. Um, we've talked a lot about the book, but uh, you're also the chief investment officer of Red Eye's fund advisory business. Uh, please tell us about this and also about Red Eye's successful Top Picks portfolio.
2: Yeah. You um, can start with Top Picks. Uh, top Picks is a, is a paper trading portfolio, long only and unhedged, that uh, Red Eye offers to private investors who want to learn about investing. The portfolio is based on Red Ice Coverage Universe of listed Nordic stocks and uh, leverages on, on our core skills of fundamental research and analysis. Uh, we can talk about uh, e, the, the investment fund, but that is more um, a mirroring of this, uh, where we actually uh, take action on, on, on it. and. Uh, uh, we have for the moment about uh, thirty million euros or something like that in investments that we run there. So it's, it's very, very small, but it's more or less our own money and friends and family. Um, so uh, uh, it gives us a lot of advantages of being that small. And of course, uh, we try to use those the best we can.
0: And Topics has had a phenomenal track record over the years. Can you tell us a bit how you measure this success?
2: Well, um, the goal with topics is to compound wealth at a superior rate over the long term while minimizing the risk of permanent losses of capital. We are not trying to be right all the time, but to increase the odds of being right, uh, the hit rate you. Uh, Most important, we try to make much more money when we are right uh, than we lose uh, uh, when we are wrong. uh, The win-loss ratio. So these are the two ratios uh, that we watch closely, particularly the win-loss ratio uh, is the most important one for us. But there are are more, of course. And I guess these are keys to the
0: outperformance?
2: Yeah, the win-loss is for sure. Um, we can, the the hit rate over the last five years has has been uh, fifty five to sixty percent, which means that most of our positions have been have outperformed the market, not just positive returns, but outperformed the market. Uh, however, as I said, the real magic in our portfolio is that we have been very good at letting our winners run. Um, our win loss ratio of about five hundred percent for the same period this is testament to this. Uh, The ratio ratio compares outperformance from good decision-making to alpha lost as a result of poor decisions. Um, A general lesson from from this is that a few great investments in the portfolio can do wonders if they are retained for a long time and then let the power of compounding do the work. Um, However, I must must say that uh, it might be too short period for for making any conclusions about our skills yet. I think 10 years would be a better time period for assessing our skills.
0: Yeah, we talked about this with Chris Mayer and the 100 baggers and uh, really holding for the long term and the compounding effects are very fascinating. And uh, how do you use the checklist approach in, in topics?
2: Basically, quality and confidence help us decide the appropriate weight of each stock in the portfolio. Uh, we also use the checklist to gauge potential risks, uh, but also in finding compounders, with, as, as we talked about. Um, uh, to, to determine a long-term compounder, uh, at least one of the three categories, people, business, and financials in our quality rating system, they must score a five, while none can score below four. Um, you know, uh, long-term compounders are, after all, uh, uh, high-quality companies so that's why I guess and uh, the key here is to assess whether the quality is likely to persist into the future at least over the next five to ten years something that I, that is best done by reviewing the checks for market structure and competitive modes and uh, other checks related to it's the company's culture
1: you bring up uh, patience um... As one of the most important traits for investors, and uh, that investors can prosper from owning quality companies for the long haul. At the same time, you advocate for some portfolio turnover, depending on the target return. Uh, can you please elaborate a bit more on that?
2: Sure. Um, very few companies compound equity and earnings at 20% or high annually for a decade or longer. Uh, I would say it's highly unlikely to achieve above 20% annual returns by buying and holding great business without selling. And this is the main reason why we are willing to invest optimistically in special situations, uh, positions that uh, with short term share price potential, in, in addition to investing in compounders. And, uh, you know, special situations where a significant part of the old Greenblatt stock allocation in the 80s and 90s when he was doing 40% a year. Likewise, I would say uh, investing in special situations was critical to Warren Buffett's performance during the 50s uh, when he was generating 50% annual returns. Uh, I think he called these stocks undervalued gen- generals and, and workouts. Uh, anyway, um, what what is most fascinating is that Buffett was able to create outsized return in years where interest rates were going up and the market did not perform well at all uh, as Dow averages well below 5% uh, during the 50s and then uh, annually. And uh, Anyhow, only too, too much capital stopped them both from persisting with investing in special situations. And I would say that's the best kind of problem you can have anyway. But they, they, they today they have too much capital, of course. And uh, uh, acting optimistically also mean that we, we take advantage of the market volatility by adjusting the size of our holdings. We often tweak the weights of the stocks by trimming our positions at the highs and uh, by buying at the lows when the probabilities are favorable. Uh, In the book, I have provided data based on the results from a volatility analysis on all stocks traded on Nasdaq Stockholm Exchange for the last 10 years. The average stock price fluctuates by roughly 100% annually, comparing 52-week low to 52-week high. And uh, that's an opportunity. as the average business online, value well, doesn't fluctuate this this much over a year, of course. So uh, we try to capture that. And uh, we've been been fairly good at adjusting the size of our holdings as our portfolio sizing has added value over time. And then the, the, the later c- can be assessed by comparing the actual cumulative return of the portfolio to that of an equally weighted portfolio with Monthly rebalancing where the cash position stays the same. Um, that said, uh, tr- tr- trimming position is very hard, and most investors are probably better off leaving it alone. After all, selling compounders because of high valuation multiple uh, and hoping to buy back uh, at the lower lo- at the lower price later on is wishful thinking and and and, and more speculative than, invest- than investing. I think I would say so. Uh, um, well, uh, I think in his book, 100-to-1 in the Stock Market, Thomas Phelps found that many stocks could have been bought at 52-week highs for many years and still turn out to be 100-to-1 winners. Um, all one has to do is to identify them, stick to them. Um, however, it won't give you the outsized return that Joel Greenblatt had in the 80s and 90s or what Buffett had in in the 50s of course so that that is why
0: and let's say that a company gets a top score in each of the categories of people business and financials and receive a, a five out of five in each of those is there any, still anything that can stop you from from buying this company
2: um yeah um overpaying is by far the, the biggest and most common mistake you should always be more concerned with the return or of your money, than rather than the, the return on your money. Uh, however, when you overpay for uh, quality, the period until the stock generates success return is is prolonged as it will typically take a few years for the business to catch up with the stock. But uh, that is if you are right about the quality. Of course, uh, you can be wrong with your analysts as well. Um, uh the, the fundamentals of margin of safety in investing is about minimizing downside risk before ever looking at the upside potential, I would say. And one, one of the most important things an investor has to stru- has to learn and, and struggle a lot with uh, is to understand that margin of safety can come from different sources and and quality is for sure one of them and how, how to handle it is is even more hard as it takes patience, as we talked about before.
1: And uh, no company will check all the boxes of these more than 100 questions. And um, in the end, I mean, there is this saying, I mean, you you should seek uh, perfection, but you should maybe settle for a bit less. And, and in the end, it comes down to decision making. What, what questions are OK to fail for you as an investor? Uh, and in the book, uh, you underline the importance of being systematic which I assume is your strategy to avoid letting emotions take over your decision-making. And knowing your big interest in mental models, we are curious, uh, which uh, are your most common biases?
2: Overconfidence, I would say, uh, is the mother of all biases. Uh, Overconfidence often leads to swift decisions that we later regret. Confidence and convictions are necessary to sit tight in multi-baggers, of course, and let the compounding do its work, but you, you can't let it blind you. Uh, uh, the, the, the payoff in multi-baggers may give us an illusion of skill which translates into overconfidence and, and, and the failure to appreciate randomness. Uh, it makes us easy on the trigger as well. Uh, in those situations, we tend to go into a hot state at high X, our rational brain, and uh, but far from everyone have have the mental discipline to, to sleep over it, to overcome emotion, and uh, give it an objective thought. And instead, we tend to believe we are far better investors than we really are, ignoring the possibility that maybe we just got lucky.
1: And do you have a specific way how you handle them uh, practically and and overconfidence then?
2: Uh, yeah, um, knowing the biases is certainly not the recipe to avoiding them. We're still humans, right? So one way to deal with these human biases is to avoid and minimize activities that trigger a lot of your behavioral mistakes and one way to overcome these biases is to commit uh, to your investment strategy, of course. Um, however, I think the best way to me is to think independently and, and guard as much relevant information as I can before making decisions. And that means going through my checklist. Also, I uh, try to clear my mind of distractions so I can focus on the long term. Uh, it means that I avoid reading a lot of news and and don't check stock prices daily. Last time I checked it was probably this Tuesday when we had this topics meeting. And that's usually the case. Uh, news is very addictive and it's typically a substitute for insight. And similar, the, cons- the constant review of daily stock prices uh, plays into uh, impatience and then irrational acting, of course. So, and that's. Final final thing, and uh, I would say I I try to keep an, an investment journal as well, a, a detailed log of investment decisions. I do this by continually revisiting my past investment decisions and and considering the information I had at the time, uh, rather than any new information. Uh, it, it, it makes it's easier for me to. Uh, understand what was and uh, is driving my investing behavior
0: so we've talked a lot about what to do as an investor but you also have this section in the book that I really like named the ugly side of compounding what do you think are the most important pitfalls for investors to avoid
2: Um, using leverage uh, it just magnifies outcomes and It doesn't add any value. Uh, uh, Never forget that any stock you buy or your whole portfolio for that sake can go down 50% or more on the whims of the market. Uh, Leverage could literally destroy in a moment the benefit of many years of investment success by margin calls and forced sales from your broker firm. So... uh, uh, a good advice would be to only using a cash-only account at your brokerage firm. Uh, also, you should seek to avoid over investments and, and lottery tickets, the, the, the get-rich-quick stocks, you know. Um, or at least ensure that these make up no more than a small portion of the portfolio.
1: And as us, we know that you love to read which books have been the main inspirations in your life as an investor
2: yeah i've 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 wrote about that in the, in the beginning of the book uh, I gave some examples of books that have influenced me in certain ways but the two books that influenced me the most uh, are to 100 to one the stock market by thomas Phelps and 100 baggers by christopher mayer uh, and Chris, uh, 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 his work w- was inspired by Phelps' work and, and published as a follow-up book, drawing from and, and extending Phelps' insights. Uh, they both studied the characteristics of companies that have delivered hundredfold returns for for, for the owners. and. Uh, uh, together, they opened my eyes to the strategy of in, investing in fast growing high-quality high quality companies and holding on to let the power compounding do its work.
1: How do you gen- generally select what to read?
2: I d- it depends. Um, uh, when it comes to investing books, uh, it's, it's more that I'm searching for answers to different questions. So for now, example, I'm, I read uh, Morris Schiller's book, uh, How to Profit on Special Situations in the Stock Market, uh, as I'm writing an article on special situation investing. So that is a good example for how I read investing books, but there are many other books there. It depends, but in, when it comes to investing, it's usually uh, something that I'm looking for, try searching for answers.
0: Where where will you publish this article about special situations?
2: Wow, I I think it would be, of course, on Red Eye and and on my uh, book site. Uh, Yeah.
1: So thank you, Björn, for a very insightful conversation about you and your book. Uh, Where can our audience uh, follow you and and buy the book?
2: Yeah, yeah. If you have read my book, I would love your thoughts on it, Uh, either in a review on Amazon or in direct email to me, Uh, you reach me at björn.redeye.se. I also want to say thank you for having me on your amazing podcast, I really want to support your efforts. It was truly an honor and I am um, even more grateful for having the chance to to work with you guys, Insights and conclusions will never be fine with you around. And uh, you both exemplify the culture here at RedEye as humble learning machines. Uh, so thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Björn.
0: Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore and email us at ib.podcast at To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.